Welcome to Breaking Banks, the number one global fintech radio show and podcast. I'm Brett King. And I'm Jason Henricks. Every week since 2013, we explore the personalities, startups, innovators, and industry players driving disruption in financial services. From incumbents to unicorns, and from cutting-edge technology to the people using it to help create a more innovative, inclusive, and healthy financial future. I'm J.P. Nichols, and this is Breaking Banks. Rising interest rates caught many by surprise. We saw some bank failures, something that hadn't been happening, especially things that looked especially healthy. The fintech venture funding dropped 50% year over year. IPOs were pulled. M&A for banks and fintechs alike are in limbo. Many say this is nothing short of an innovation nuclear winter, unlike anything we've ever seen before. For others, this state of the world seems vaguely familiar before a decade plus of zero interest rate policies. Except this isn't just a reversion to the mean. There are many structural differences from 2008 and 2000 before that. It feels familiar, but we're really entering the twilight zone of fintech. Is it a dystopian future or will there be the unexpected twist? Listen to a full episode of debate between Raul Beige, head of venture capital coverage at Wells Fargo, Sarah Hinkfuss, partner at Bain Capital Ventures, and Amaya Garrity, partner at QED Investors. And yes, there was plenty of hot sauce to go with the hot takes. And Amaya even shares his secret recipe for the homemade hot sauce he was sipping. This is one hot episode. All right, for this episode of Hot Takes, not only is it going to be a hot conversation, a range of topics, Amias has actually brought his own homebrew hot sauce. So why don't we start with the secret recipe? All right, so this is this is a milky, uh, I can't see it. It's a milky color. It's from a locally grown Washington, D.C. purple pepper, uh, which I mixed with salt, apple cider vinegar, and butter, because that's what buffalo sauce is. It's butter and hot sauce. Interesting. Well, I can't wait to see if you start sweating in the midst of this. And so this is a back to reality show, right? Or, or is it really an alternate reality? You know, for those of us who've been in this game long enough, Roel, I think that's you and I when we talk about, you know, the first crash with the dot-com bubble is actually right when I got into venture. And then we had 2008, which Sarah and Elias, you guys both got to enjoy. And, you know, if you listen to most of the commentary around FinTech VC right now in a non-ZERP world, there are many who say, oh, this is a return to normalcy, right? Like if you look at funding data, um, we're back to what the trend was outside of that spike. And Sarah, I think you've written some fantastic stuff around that. Except I think we're in a different spot. Like there's some been some fundamental changes that we can't point to and say this is 2008 or you know, even pre-call it uh, you know, 2020 when things got crazy. Sorry, I want to start with you. Like, what are when you think of the exogenous factors, are we really back to a return to normalcy or is this time different? Yeah, I would characterize it differently as a long unraveling. And so it's going to feel very different when you're at a height and then you go down to a trough than it does when you are building up slowly over time. And so you're right that if you look at the numbers, both from a valuations perspective and then also from a just the amount of funding that's happening, 
it looks similar to what it was before, but I don't think that's how anyone's experiencing it, either on the investor side or the startup side. Roel, you have a macro view of this. You're both covering non-fintech for Wells Fargo, but also you're touching a lot of VCs, but specific to fintech, what do you think is different this time? So I think Sarah is exactly right, but it depends of who you are. It's a series A. You are immensely popular because you're creating new ideas in the new normal. And smaller checks at an earlier stage seem to be the sort of order of the day because of the fabulous infusion of AI and other factors. And then the further along you go in the alphabet, the more difficult it is. And those are the ones who experience the decline that you're talking about. But on the notion that, you know, most VCs in fintech would say that fintech is everywhere. It's, I like, I like the analogy of the long shakeout or the long decline because what started as disruption is sort of evolving into cooperation and then collaboration. And those who can, in Seinfeld terms, exist in the corner of First Avenue and First Street probably do well going forward. Amayas, what do you see? Yeah, I, I think that's right. I, I do think this is different, but that's largely because it's more like 2001 in that this is a, to the extent it's a downturn, doesn't feel like a recession yet in the macro stats. It's a downturn that is focused on the startup ecosystem. Whereas in, in 2008, the real thing that happened is interest rates came down to zero. And the benefit of being new was you didn't have a balance sheet. You had no overhang. So there was this massive wave of both opportunity and low-cost funding that came about really fast in the wake of 2008. Um, and there wasn't an overhang that was specific to the kinds of um, you know, over-exuberant over uh, expectations from, from people like us. So I think that's, I think that's definitely um, why this feels so long. But again, from 2001 to what, 2004, five. Right, we had a huge long dip in startup funding, and I think that's probably what we're living through now. Yeah. Well, I am having some of my Bring Banks hot takes. My uh, bank partner ghosted me in honor of <laughs> uh, my next statement here, which I think one of the fundamental things that changes is the massive amount of funding that went into a bunch of Me Too's. Right. So think of the number of Challenger Bank for this, that, and the next thing that ha- are sitting on a lot of money with, you know, we'll get into M&A later in the show, but without necessarily having an advantage on what they were built for. And then the next pick on is, if you look at all of the bad middleware players that got into the middle of this, that made it easy for a whole bunch of banks to get into Baz that suddenly now are deposit starved because they don't want to be paying 5% and they think that Baz is some silver bullet. I think, Sarah, to you know, continue on the unraveling, I think we're actually, we haven't hit peak unraveled yet in terms of no. really some of it is still building momentum in the mess that this ball of yarn is about to become. Yeah, I, I totally agree. I So in terms of where we are in it, I think we're going to see a lot more consolidation going forward. And so 
one of the advantages of fintech when the market was doing so well is that fintech tracks the market. And so the more the economy is humming, the more money is going in, the more new companies are being created, the more people are spending, right? Like all those things are great growth drivers for the financial services market. And I think now what you see is that's actually a lot more in question, as as Amias was saying, just in terms of the market health overall and as it relates to the startup ecosystem. But the second thing is that so much of the energy from the investor landscape is going into generative AI. And so that's where we see a lot of the bright stars in, in the investing landscape. And the applications to financial services, I think, have been less clear. And so you have some very early stage companies that are doing that. You have some growth stage companies that are starting to build it in, but it's less of an application versus what we're seeing in enterprise SaaS, for example. And so I think you're also seeing some of the investor attention shift, which furthers the need then for consolidation among the uh, the growth stage fintech landscape. Yeah. Has it changed your focus, Sarah, in terms of, you know, are you running after some of the AI or given where we are, is it, you know... Bain, obviously, you do everything from pre-seed to late stage growth. You know, where has it changed your level of focus and what are you excited about? Yeah, so it's a different picture. I agree with Raul, like as you go across the landscape. So in the real in the various in the very earliest stages, I think we're looking for disruptive players. And so a lot of financial services, a lot of like fintech startups of the last generation were me too's and it was a lot of incremental solutions. And so right now we're really focused on finding companies that are truly disruptive in the way that they're leveraging technology in these existing markets and able to quickly get to product market fit. And I think that's where there's been more of a challenge in this most recent generation that you have a lot of companies that raised a lot of capital when funding was easy to get, but are still pre-product market fit and are now trying to figure out how much they invest to get to product market fit versus what their runway is or how they identify who a potential acquirer would be. For our for companies in that market, we're, we're supporting them to figure out how do they play against the competition and then making sure that they're um, being very thoughtful against their balance sheet. So I can talk more there on like the portfolio company support side as well. And then on the, the later stage, growth stage fintechs, we're really helping them think through the ways to apply as incumbents their distribution and their data advantage to really take advantage of the fact that there are now these new technologies that can enable them to become much closer to their uh, customers more quickly. So it, it's like a very different picture across the landscape. I, I was just going to say, I think one thing that I would say a little bit different what Rahul, I actually think there's a there's kind of a smile curve here, which is I think actually Series B is the hardest place both for founders and investors right now, because the, what I see is like at the seed stage you can still kind of YOLO a seed check. Ah, like it seems great, you know. Um, possibly go wrong. Yeah, exactly. With, well, with, more, diligence, with more diligence, with more diligence. Yeah, that's right. And I think at the Series A, you see a lot there. We we see a lot more value coming back into the market, right? Because even if you had quote unquote overpriced seed, let's say you did a seed at twenty post, well, maybe your markup isn't double or triple. Maybe it's thirty percent or fifty percent, but that's still a markup if you've got traction, if you've got signs of product market fit. By the time you get to the Series B, you're in this, I think, really tough spot where, on the one hand, no one can YOLO a Series B check anymore. 
Yeah. Right. Those crossover funds, YOLOing $50 million checks is just gone. And you haven't, the, the chances that like you magically got to profitability on series mm -hmm. A are just really low. And the metrics for series B went from, oh yeah, clear line of sight to 5 million of ARR to clear line of sight to 10 million of ARR, maybe already 10 million of ARR. And it yeah. went from, oh, I want to be sure you have product market fit to, I want to be sure you know how to build a company. Like you've got yeah. a KPI framework, you've got your financial controls, you've got a fully built leadership team. And, you know, companies weren't built to do that in two years. Mm -hmm. And now we're seeing those really oftentimes great Series A companies just dealing with a vast movement of the goalposts. So I think that's the, that's kind of the black hole of the market right now. Um, it's just really hard to get into that Series B market because the goalposts have moved so hard to the right. I totally agree. And I call it the anti-Goldilocks effect. It's just, it's really hard to be just right in the middle. Totally agree. Well, and the one thing I would push back on that is in Frank, uh, Robman from QED had a great Twitter thread on this. Follow him at FinTech Junkie if you don't already. But when the goalpost is so high, I find it really hard to look at these 30, 50% step up deals because it becomes a question of, are you only getting that much of a step up because you've kind of stalled out? You've got a little bit of Peter principle coming into effect versus if it was priced right the first time, you know, it, it, it's a lot easier to get excited about something. You can say it is a double. Yeah, I think that there's there's definitely that, but there is a repricing that has to come in the market. And so, you know, the way I think about it is like this should be a double, but you did an overpriced seed. Pay the pay right. If your seed had been properly priced, I'm giving you a 2x or 3x markup. And that still feels like good value to me. Um, whereas I think the real, the, you know, it's look, the overpriced series A's um, in 2021 are leaving a lot of, uh, you know, people like me and Sarah just sort of think, I don't know, I can't write a check for 150 million pre, maybe for a 10 million in ARR and tripling. But you know, that's just a really hard check to write in this market. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And Raul, I'm curious, and I mean, it's distinct lack of hot sauce eating going on over there. Uh, <laughs> I'm the only one beginning to sweat. But Raul, how does this repricing, like how does the pig get through that python in terms of, you know, whether it's the A or the B, probably some of both, how does that actually structurally begin to, to grind out? One word. Patience. I think the best companies are going to sl slowly start to roll up those who are contiguous. They're going to roll up those with overlapping services. And companies number three, four, five, six in a category are going to seed some share to number one and two, possibly three. And there'll be more M&A of equals before there is M&A by financial institutions or private equity until they can get to the scale. And I love Amaius's analogy of the smile. It's how I wake up every day. But what's lacking at the other end of the smile is the exit. And I think until that happens, and we're all hopeful the second half of the year is a little more uh, robust than the first, but most are thinking about a year and a half from now when we can all truly smile. Because once those exits happen, the smile will be complete. And so the patience to grow and 
uh, assimilate others who do similar things is my my view on how we get through this period. Well, on the these mergers of equals, does that really only work though if you have a certain level of scale? And then a ruthless, you know, scalpel, maybe even like the full-on cleaver to take out expenses to make it work? Well, fortunately, many companies are still at an earlier stage and with Amaya and Sarah's direction have already trimmed uh, their burn in most instances. So two mediocre companies don't add to be a great one. So you will find maybe one of them is stronger for whatever reason and is missing something in their arsenal that smaller companies are able to do and superpower them. So that's why I was, you know, the merger of equals, because I think it needs to be at this stage a cultural fit in as much as a true sort of, you know, M&A thing, because you know, most smaller companies, when they go to a large institution, just get swallowed into the apparatus. I believe emerging tech should stay true to their culture and break things and continue to break things. And in many senses are the R&D arm of America. And we want to do, we want them to succeed and be bigger and, you know, think about the world differently. So I'm curious for our two VCs, Sarah, go for it. You you knew the question I was going to (laughs) ask. I well, I, I may be answering a different one. I also want to say I have a California burrito that I like a large, like larger than than my face that I am eating with my <laughs> with my hot sauce. Um, Which hot sauce though? <laughs> um, I was gonna start with the chipotle sauce. I'll start. I'll start milder and then get into it, Jason. Working um, So I I think it's it is. Uh, Private equity has used M&A for a while as part of the playbook. I think we're now, for all these reasons, seeing it come into venture as a critical piece. And I think it would be folly to see M&A as one idea. And so I think we're seeing all of the different flavors of M&A today. And so it's the small M&A of a team bringing them on. It could be product M&A. It could be customer M&A. We talked about the M&A of equals. But we're also increasingly seeing where a company that is well-positioned in the market that is growing very well is actually looking to acquire larger, older competitors who are more of playing the role of the cash cow in that overall combined company um, uh, strategy. And that really matters because for the reasons that we don't know when the exit market is going to come back, companies need to be positioned to grow for longer on their own. And so having the ability to actually have parts of your business which are stable and profitable as you're paying for some more exciting, newer parts of the organization today, which is probably where the founder came from, we're seeing a lot of excitement around that that type of M&A. So I, I, would, sure. I would just not overlook the different flavors of M&A today. So make sure I understand this. The idea being a later stage company that is growing nicely is actually going and acquiring that competitor that call it I'm acquiring their customers or their distribution channel to apply my more exciting company. In some regards, right, be it's a little bit of like a multiple arbitrage. I know I'm going to have a high multiple, so I want to go buy you know your revenue stream or grow mine better so that I can arbitrage it when the market's open. Yeah, it's a smaller company buying a larger player that is typically lower growth, but much higher profitability. And so combined, the company can then do more interesting things. Mike, I'm curious, what are you seeing and what are you advising regarding M&A? So I think that's right. Although first I want to note, I'm doing my best to defeat the deep fake 
videos by having my skin temperature rise with this ghost pepper. <laughs> um, We're all starting to glisten a little bit at this point. Yeah, exactly. So, so I'm, I feel like I'm, I'm at least trying over here. I'm trying to make sure this is authentic content. Um, <laughs> so that the, the video screen can tell my face is getting redder. Um, but yeah, I think this is exactly right. The, what, what Sarah said is, is really interesting. And part of this is a lot, a lot of times we find companies thinking about inorganic growth and organic growth as like forks on a path. Like, well, okay, we can either grow, try to grow organically, or we can try to grow inorganically. And I think what Sarah is describing is a dynamic that's much more like wrong way risk, right way, virtuous cycle, vicious cycle. If you have organic growth, you're going to be able to attract capital. If you can attract capital, then you can acquire slower growing competitors. I think that a lot of, uh, you know, especially well-funded founders thought, oh, well, I could like buy my way into growth. And I think the markets will see through that. But what Sarah describes where you take a stronger growth engine or a stronger growth team and combine it with a more profitable, slow and growing entity, I think that's going to um, drive this shakeout is that the winners are going to have lower cost of capital. They're going to take those synergies out. That's going to lead to continued higher multiples. And then they're going to be able to run that roll up play. Um, the point of MA is not to do it once, it's to do it multiple times. Um, so we see that happening. But I think, you know, for, for our companies, there is definitely a tightrope to walk. You know, you um, you think about, oh, I'll I'll buy somebody and then I'll take out the cost. It'll be great. And then I'll repeat. Um, but you really need very strong capital partners to do that. And it usually takes at least, you know, 18 months to two years to know whether that first M&A went well or not. Um, so I do think, as Rahul said, this is going to take patience to run this consolidation playbook. I mean, we look at this and um, we can see the shakeouts happening. For now, they're more happening at the level of just like, hey, are you willing to take some of my salary? Are you willing to take something that gives me something that looks like an exit? Um, then we're seeing the, the real M&A. So the, the one thing I would punctuate is liquidity, because as a user of the services of these companies, mm -hmm. it first goes to risk you know, management and supply chain to see whoever services we adopt do they have the wherewithal to continue to serve us and our clients well? And so the depth of liquidity is definitely way more important than it used to be. We, it was first the killer product, and then we can apply it. And now we're looking, honestly, to the venture community to make sure they are behind the top, the winners, and therefore we can use them uh, for you know, sometimes the onboarding process takes 18 months, 12 to 18 months. Can they survive that and then serve our clients? Mm -hmm. So the, the liquidity and scale definitely matter. And is the product itself scalable? And we've been in several situations where, you know, amazing tech, get them in front of a solution, they win. But the size of our need is so big that it often goes to the bigger player that's good enough versus the absolute great technology that you know belongs to one of your uh, portfolios so well, liquidity is to the problem of of dry powder right which is right. there there's plenty of dry powder out there but the pressure on that dry powder is very intense because if you use your reserves to back only companies that end up being winners the fund will be great 
But if you try to peanut butter spread it, right? And, yeah. you know, some other competitor or the incumbent actually ends up being the winner, um, then that reserve dollar is basically wasted. And so I think this is partly why, on the one hand, there's a lot of dry powder out there, but it doesn't make it any easier for companies to get access to that dry powder because of the dynamic that Rohul said, which is we are under intense scrutiny and pressure to only back the winners. Mm -hmm. And I mean, just one other layer of complexity for that too, for founders are those that took party rounds, so to speak, at earlier stages. And so without a clear lead, because I I think those are the people in the most challenging position today, if they're pre-product market fit, of figuring out who's going to step up and think about building that bridge to make sure they can find their way out on the other side, or at least get the chance in the market to, to prove that out. Um, and so one thing that's been nice as an investor now is I feel like there is so much more emphasis that founders have across stages on really understanding the relationship with the team and not just getting the capital that, that comes in the door at the timing that they're looking for it. We're spending a lot more time assessing the caliber of our co-investors on these as a result mm -hmm. and more time diligencing, do we think that this founder can raise the next round, whatever that round is going to look like? Are they going to, or to the point of, you know, a series B, 5 million ARR isn't enough, 10 million might not be enough. Do you actually have the infrastructure, right? And we spent a lot of time looking, is this the team that can carry it forward? I want to flip to the other side of this for a second. And, you know, when a lot of the funding started to dry up, the number of direct-to-consumer, direct-to-customer players we saw suddenly come knocking on Alloy Labs' door going, hey, we just decided we don't compete with banks anymore. We want to sell to banks. And they're going to be our distribution channel, which is all well and good, uh, except given where we are. And Raul, the question for you in the Wells Fargo perspective on this is, I'm not sure if we just came out of a recession, we're going into a recession. Goldman Sachs says they don't expect a recession all the way through 2024. But if you talk to bankers, they're acting like it, right? And they have a well-established playbook for uh, when they think there's a recession. And one of those is no new expenses or you know, as little as possible, as well as that flight to quality on the, is this going to be around? Well, I'm curious from a macro view, what is you know your stance and how are you advising funds as they're thinking about this, about what is the state of the economy? So I can't comment on Wells Fargo's view, but my <laughs> personal view is that we're in this sort of holding pattern. And much like you, you know, landing at JFK in New York, you just seem to be there forever. <laughs> and we're in this delayed period where a recession could happen eight, 10 months from now, because there is a view that companies have been artificially kept afloat with government programs. So they've survived longer than they should have. Uh, the soft landing, while very popular in the press, still doesn't speak to sort of underlying concern that people have for um, like, when does this come? This is like the recession that's never there, jobs are strong, all these other factors. And I feel once that's rebalanced, there will be time for the recession to then play out, hopefully a very mild one or one not at all. But history suggests that after periods like this and rising interest rates, that the recession will follow. There are a unique set of circumstances that are keeping us 
sort of in this flat pattern. But no question, expenses are being looked at much harder than they were ever before. And certainly from you know a tech budget, and this is for all institutions, it's not unlimited. You've just got to use it in a wise way. And, and again, there's sort of buy versus build it yourself because we sit on s- such a large portion of the customer base. Like, how do you spend it well? So I, I feel, you know, TBD, because this is the most elusive recession we've ever been through. And may it never come, but there's a, there's a view that it's delayed. We're going to take a quick break so that all of our guests can reload their hot sauce, dab their brow, go find some milk or something else to take the burn away. But after the break, we're going to come back and we're going to talk about funding M&A and exits. And it's about time. Show me the money. This show is brought to you by Alloy Labs. As much as we love talking on the show, we believe that action is more valuable than talk. Alloy Labs is the industry leader in helping fearless bankers drive exponential growth through collaboration, exclusive partnerships, and powerful network effects that give them an unfair advantage. Learn more at AlloyLabs.com. Alloy Labs, banking unbound. All right, we are back and getting even spicier. We're going to talk about M&A and exits in that window that's open. Sarah already threw out the hypothesis. We might see some reverse uh, mergers and acquisitions, right? The smaller player buying the larger. But let's talk about first some of these unicorns, right? Many of which, uh, Roel, I think you were the one who told me this. They've lost their horn recently when we were prepping for this. What happens for you know the stripes and chimes of the world that clearly have product market fit, had the potential to go public and have decided not to. You know, what happens, you know, to the unicorns? Let's work our way backwards. Anybody want to pick on backwards from Stripe or backwards from where? No, from the unicorns back towards let's get into the small player tuck in Equihire M&A. Yeah, I mean, like I I was looking this morning, right? Uh, Dave and Money Lion are both worth ab- about or less than cash on the balance sheet. And, you know, these were high-flying companies not that many years ago, right? They, they were sort of the cream of the crop of um, Neobank. Now, ex- exactly what that means, I don't know. I mean, Root, Metro Mile, Hippo, right? Um now, lemonade is sort of, you know, keeping its its uh, its stock price up, one point five billion. Um, but but these are companies that have really struggled. I think on the other hand, you can see companies like Encino, right? It's a classic SaaS company. Now, Encino is down from its highs, but it is still trading at about ten x revenue. So it's trading a little less than 10x revenue, um, but it's it's kind of in that zone. And I think this speaks to one of the ever never-ending challenges for fintech, which is like, should fintech get tech multiples? And with the answer for some of these, um, you know, cash consumptive uh, companies, the answer is no. And for others, whether you know actually just software companies that serve banks, well, maybe the answer is yes. Um, 
But I think the hope for all of us in fintech is that the answer is not only yes for just software companies, but that there are other good companies that can be built in the world of fintech. Um, and I think that's where we see the the struggle playing out in exits, and and that does work its way back. Um, you know, if if MoneyLine is worth a uh, hundred million dollars, how do you price a Series A? Well, yeah, I'm going to take the opportunity. I I totally agree with that. But on this, on the concept of ghosts, so I've been challenged to put the ghost pepper on on mine, which I will do, and just dumped it out as well. So we'll see how this goes. Um, <laughs> I actually think it's better to be a ghost in the public markets than it is to be in the public markets. And so, Jason, your entry to the question was around Chime and Stripe and others who haven't gone public, and and. Um, I mean, as you talked about how the publicly traded companies are really in a tough spot with a lot of them versus their like the cash in the balance sheet. But I think for those who are still private, while we have, I think, popularly been sad that they didn't have the opportunity to go public when the market was so hot, they're actually in this amazing position now where they're able to really perfect their strategy with the benefit of being private. And so figuring out what are the different programs that I want to push forward? What do I want to kill? How am I setting up the story that I want to tell in this new market that cares about growth as well as profitability? And so they're in this advantage position, actually, of being able to create that. And so they're kind of the ghost that's around everyone else. And I think the trickiest part is for the companies that are public today that are trying to do all of that maneuvering and like really steering a huge ship. But in the eye of public investors who are very sensitive, and they may not have as deep of trading pools either. And that's why we're seeing such wild fluctuations around their their pricing. It's gone from grow at all costs to grow up at all costs. Um, If we can extract that. And unfortunately, it favors those who have a first mover advantage and those who already have a successful commercial model and uh, have a much narrower window to being profitable. And even if you're not, you have a path to profitability and B2B in this instance has certainly trumped B2C. And we'll see those with an enduring model hopefully come out the second half of this year or certainly next year, demonstrating that to the market. But in general, the public FinTech index is reasonably robust and has come back from this massive dip that they experienced at the end of 2000 and about last year. Well, and I think the supporting data for Sarah, your comment about better to be a ghost, if you look at the fintech SPACs that happen, so call it premature public, mm-hmm. um, you know, they've all gotten hammered and you're fixing a ship while being hammered by shareholders and your largest institutional investors, you know, that does not help the situation to have you know your stock price falling and investors screaming. Mm-hmm. So if we, yeah, I think there are some there are some truisms here that people forget, right? Which is revenue is not gross profit, right? And yeah. you know people talk about that. Oh, if you can get to a hundred million dollars in revenue, you're going to be a great company. But I think the actual truth is if you can get to $100 million of growth profit, you have a chance to be a great company. And the real question for public market investors when they value that is how fast are you growing when you hit $100 million in gross profit? 
And I think a lot of startup founders and venture investors kind of fooled themselves like 100 million in revenue was the destination. And it's really not. It's $100 million in gross profit. And then even there, the valuation question is how fast is your gross profit growing when you hit that milestone? And th- that I think is, you know, it's so obvious, right? Like you could have talked to any equity analyst on Wall Street and they would have told you this. But somehow in the venture world, we allowed ourselves to kind of forget it and say, let just revenue stand in for everything. Yeah. One of my first angel investors, my first startup had advised us says revenue covers a lot of sins, profits cover all of them. (laughs) So let's come back to now the middle of the market. So if you're a big business that has the benefit of incumbency and you can ghost it out, until mm-hmm. the markets return and continue to improve. And Amaius, I loved you know the talk of the gross margin and how do you improve gross margin, either greater efficiency, a whole host of things you have the benefit of scale to chip away at. But what about then back to our, you know, call them the B's and C's that have raised a lot of money, but don't have that path to profitability. What happens there? And Raul, why don't we start with you? So I'm going to make an assumption on behalf of the VC community. You invest in people. And there was some element coming into the beginning of this year around founder fatigue and keeping people on track at and your company. And a number of people have got have gotten older, making a generational comment during the time they've started in fintech and now have responsibilities like kids and college fees and other things and are contemplating more corporate roles versus a fintech or a tech company that's going to change the world and many of their stock being so drastically underwater. So, you know, as a founder, as a board, uh, you know, the biggest hope is to keep the people so you can get through this, this period. And it's going to be, a, you know, very, very difficult period, but the greatest companies are created during difficult times. So as, as has been heard a number of times, so people, 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 uh, in addition to the killer product. Yeah. I mean, I think it's all about how do you prove to the investor community that you're a consolidator and not one being consolidated in the growth and that like growth tranche of the B's and C's that we're talking about. And so that's a function of, to Raul's point, the the personality strength of the invest of the founder and their ability to raise capital. It's their the unit economics and their growth and how you play the levers between those two. And then it's also telling the story of the TAM that you can actually access because that's what determines that end state uh, revenue growth kegger that's like so critical as you think about how you'll actually price in the public markets. Um, and so there are many different ways that people access that, but I think those that are uh the the players that are in the the spaces that where there's the most me twos and are pre-product market fit are those that are in the most challenging position. Yeah. Me too is a hard place to be, especially when it's one, even for the incumbent, you're not sure what that path to profitability is going to look like. And so it's only downhill from there. One of my favorite bank conferences to go to is bank directors, acquire, be acquired. And Sarah, to your point, so for years, Al Dominic, uh, the former CEO, is now at Cornerstone, but still MC, has always opened the conference with the same question, said, who is here looking to make an acquisition? It's like, 
every hand in the audience goes up. And then over the course of the next you know, three days, but you know, after a couple of cocktails, almost every CEO kind of leans in and goes, you know, if the price were right, we'd be open <laughs> uh, to be acquired. So it, I think it will be interesting to see who really has the stomach for doing that acquisition and you know, the hard work afterwards of integration that you don't lose your best people in the vision of the product. Mm-hmm. Now, I'm curious um, for this crowd, Amanda, let's start with you. When you think about the earlier stage companies that are given the chance to have an aqua hire, whether it's a Capital One or uh, you know a larger player, you know that is trying to expand its product on its path to expansion of gross margin. How should earlier stage companies look at that opportunistic, not such a big exit, but should they be taking those more seriously than they have in the past? So I think the the first answer is yes, 100%. The, The two frameworks that I always use when I'm counseling early stage founders is I call it the viability of a $50 million exit. Because I think in in the world of venture, it's easy to forget or to lose sight of just how much enterprise value is created. Like real, like a $50 million company is a big company in the real world, right? If like when any of us were growing up, if you heard that your neighbor's parents were like the founders of a $50 million company, you'd be like, wow, they must be- I'm coming to your house to go swimming. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And so I think what what founders sometimes miss is that if you capitalize a company right, that $50 million exit or even less in many instances can be completely and utterly transformative for them and for many of their team members, right? Like you want to buy a second house on a lake in northern Minnesota, you don't need 10 million bucks, right? You exactly. Haven't seen, you haven't seen the houses my wife is looking at, but yes. <laughs> well, as a person who went to summer camp in Minnesota, I've seen houses like them, and I can bet that you can buy them for like far less than than the the fifty million dollar exit uh, a price. So I think the first thing we do is we just try and counsel people to remember that you know for your VCs, let's say you've got a ten million dollar prep stack, the VC is actually completely agnostic on the price you pay from the pref stack until when you beat the last price, right? So if you raised, you know, $10 million on successive rounds where the highest price was 35, you know, from $10 million up to 35, that's transformative money for you and your team, but it actually doesn't change the VC's outcomes at all. So part of that is we try to give our founders permission to recognize that fundamental economic truth. And then the second thing that we do is we try to remind people that this might have been their first startup, but it doesn't have to be their last. And the value of being an exited founder, you know, unless unless it was material to the acquirer, the price is never disclosed. Yeah. And whether you sold your company for $10 million of stock or 150 grand to just get a flyer on the acquirer company's stock. You get to say you're an exited founder and you're get to say that you ran the whole journey. And I think we try to encourage people to be very pragmatic in that zone 
about both just how meaningful it could be for them and for their employees to get the exit and for what a cred it is to be an exited founder, assuming that you're going to have a long career. And that's what we, you know, this is the game we're all playing, right? We're all going to have long careers. Maybe just to add a third consideration, that's like one step before there's actually a transaction to go through, is that it's often a good idea. I I think sometimes people are um, afraid of like getting into what could be perceived as an acquisition conversation because of some of the optics around it as, as you're talking about. But it's only information that you're getting. Like you're getting information around how incumbents in the space are viewing you and viewing your market. You're developing a relationship that could be a partnership or could be a sales channel, right? Like there are, di- there are different ways it could manifest that it could may not just be acquisition. And so really trying to bring down the temperature almost of those conversations and leaning into the relationship development as a way to, to develop how much more else could come from that conversation. I'll add one just pure social comment, which is takes 10 years to be an overnight success. And in a world of instant gratification, Maya, to your point, you can't just suddenly wake up and have an exit. Foundering in general is very hard. And for any founders listening, and we all happen to be close personal friends, they go through enormous pain to keep their team afloat, keep their clients uh, afloat. They're often the technology person. They're the they're the super, they're everything. And they wear so many hats and they're expected to have the trappings of a public institution all at breakneck speed. So if I could just have a shout out for founders to stay the course and it takes time and, and the good cream rises to the top. Well, there's a new pressure for these founders too, where I'm transitioning from a uh, ghost pepper sauce to the OCC Chipotle, which I think is the appropriate time to talk about a certain group that is not ghosting these days, which is uh, the OCC and the CFPB increasingly active. And Amaya, let's start with you. Are you taking a different view on your diligence related to regulatory? And can you unpack how that might have changed now that we have some activist regulators? Yeah, so I think the first answer is yes. Um, What we see is that, and a lot of it starts with culture, right? The, The phrase in banking is culture of compliance. And I think that it's, it's easy to say that phrase. It's a lot harder to live it. And so we do tend to spend more time kind of poking people on what they think culture of compliance means, um, even at the very, very early stages, right? Our, um, you know, we were just in a conversation with a seed to series A company and we asked them, you know, hey, about these marketing messages, how do you think about, you know, the review that goes into these marketing messages. And, you know, this is a company that's small enough, the founders are literally writing themselves. So we said, are you thinking about UDAP? And the answer that came back was, yes, you know, this is actually something we are aware of and we try to make sure the language is consistent, you know, things like that. So I think even at the very early stages, you can test for awareness and culture. I think the second thing is that, um, and again, you know, Jason, you're, you're negative on Bass. I'm on the board at Treasury Prime. Like one of the things that we really emphasize, right, is that you cannot outsource compliance. You cannot have someone else do it. It is your obligation. And that's why we think Treasury Prime is good at what they're doing, because Treasury Prime says, 
we're actually a software company. We give you the tools for you and the bank to fulfill your obligations, but we don't take those obligations. Those are yours. And I think there's a real challenge for the regulators because there's so much difficulty navigating the what is the tech, what is just a cultural weakness versus what is a operational oversight or or what have you. And um, all those things get mixed together from the perspective of the examiner. And I think it's our job as investors to really send that message home and to try and drive it um, from, from the start. Conrad Alt um, at the Claris Group had a great post yesterday. He said, it's very simple. You tell the regulators what you're going to do, then you do it, then you show them that you've done it, and then you repeat. And you just do that until you have their confidence. And I think that's that culture of compliance that people find a lot harder in practice than in uh, rhetoric. I had, uh, in the midst of Zerp, a very fast-growing company that I was looking at the angel round. And I actually passed, and I'm honestly, I think you'll find this funny, because they were saying they were a checking account, but I knew for a fact that they were running on prepaid rails. And they called it a check, but it was really a bill pay. Mm -hmm. And when I challenged them on it, one of the co-founders told me, those are semantics. And I expressed back, I'm like, I've not really met many regulators who believe in semantics. Sarah, <laughs> I'm curious from your perspective, you know, how has Bain, you know, looked at this? Because you know, you've long taken, actually, both of your firms have long taken a I would pass before doing something that could tarnish our reputation related to this. Has it up to your scrutiny or is it you had such a high bar when you started that it wasn't really an issue? Yeah, I mean, this particular issue hasn't hasn't come up. I would say, to your point, there's been a lot of focus over time on being um, aware of what the regulators are doing and and being very cautious around it as well. I, I do think it's worth just calling out, though, and this is returning to the beginning of the conversation, how we think about fintech in the broader landscape of venture investing right now. And this is just, frankly, an area that is more challenging that fintech companies have to deal with. And so there is... If, if I'm a, a vertical SaaS player selling to another market, or like it just enterprise, right? I don't need to worry about all of the different constellation of what regulators are doing in the alphabet soup in a way that I do as a fintech company. And so there is this additional burden of compliance and this additional cost and complexity that comes along. Um, and so it's something that makes it really important when you have specialized fintech investors around the table who can call that out, as Amias was talking about on the board that he's doing that. Um, and we do that for our companies as well. But it also means that that it is harder, I think, to really break out because you have to go slow before you can go fast. Nice. All right. As we come to a close here, let's do a quick speed round for uh, startups, for established companies and for founders. What should you be thinking about right now? What is that one thing you do? And Sarah, why don't we start with you? If you're an established startup, one of those later stage, what's your focus? Um focuses on talent. And so really making sure that I'm getting the best people and keeping them in. So keeping them motivated, having a clear story on the vision of where my company is going, how everyone who's involved is going to change their lives through the organization that they're a part of. Um, and then I think also having really an opportunistic view of the landscape. And so being open to the opportunities that some of the smaller companies that aren't doing as well provide, 
um, being opportunistic around additional funding rounds when you find good investors who have the right constellation that you want to add to your cap table. And then also to be opportunistic around some of the new technologies that are coming out in the ways that you could take advantage of it, such as generative AI. Amias? So, you know, I think those are great thoughts, but the the one that we just keep coming back to is customers, 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 right? These are the thing, you know, your customers are happy. Are you really doing everything that you can to make them happier and to keep them there? You know, every day we see new companies come up right at the edge of one of our company's product lines. And, you know, you've got a product roadmap. Should you should you switch? Should you expand? Should you take that competitive threat or not? And the answer we coming back to is don't think of it about the competition. Think about it from the customer's perspective. What are you doing to make sure that customer is as happy as they can possibly be. And to Sarah's point about some of this tech, often that's going to mean using this tech to cut your price. And I think those are the types of really hard strategic decisions that we're pushing on our founders. Like you might need to give up price in order to maintain relevance and in order to remain um, customer um, primary. What's the old adage? Your existing customer is your best new prospect. What, what advice would you give, Raul? Very similar to uh, both of them. And I would add, keep Amias and Sarah and people like them very close and no surprises. Now is a stage of not only focusing on your customers and your culture and your funding, but make sure you're feeding that back into your board and reporting what you're doing. And you can't change your business in a week, but the closer you keep your board to your success, that they're vested in yours as well. I had uh, one of our startups now exited, but a very good sales guy made the joke, who's the VP of sales, said, if you have good news, call. If you have a question, email. If you have bad news, fax. And I would say... The exact opposite is true today, right? Which is, if it's good news, we can probably wait till the board meeting and don't get too excited. But if it's bad, you better be picking up the phone to call me first. All right. So last question, last speed round here. Let's make it hot. I'm thinking of starting a company. What do I need to be thinking about? And let's say I'm a first-time founder for this one, right? Exited founder being something different, as you've all pointed out. Sarah, should I do it? Definitely. <laughs> I mean, I think it's the best time to start. Um, it doesn't it doesn't strip away the need to do the deep research. I think talking to customers is is the number one place to start, but then also really understanding why the players before you in a market have not been successful or what you're doing differently. And so really having a wedge that can put you on a different growth path. Um, but I, in, in many ways, I think it's a much better position in the market now to be starting than it is to be an existing company. Yeah. Raul? I can't say anything different. This, I mean, I feel we're at the bottom from an investing perspective. So everybody's checkbooks are sort of open because money is not going to sit idle forever. And if you can create value and think of existing and uh, the past and the future in a new way, they always say this is the difficult times are the best for, for new founders because you're at the new valuation, everything's a little more realistic, free money is over, and a lot of theses have already been 
um, vetted. And if you can come at it differently, this is an amazing time. Yeah, I just say, uh, call me. <laughs> we'll be running a ticker with Amias's phone number at, at the bottom going by, right? Fantastic. Well, thanks for keeping it spicy with me today. Thank you to the listeners. If you want some of this hot sauce, send me a DM about why you should be able to get some. And Sarah, you didn't look too rough after the ghost pepper. Nice work. Amaya's yeah, it's idea. delicious. <laughs> I, I will be getting your recipe shortly and putting that to work. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. Thank you. That's it for another week of the world's number one fintech podcast and radio show, Breaking Banks. This episode was produced by our US-based production team, including producer Lisbeth Severins, audio engineer Kevin Hersham, with social media support from Carlo Navarra and Sylvie Johnson. If you like this episode, don't forget to tweet it out or post it on your favorite social media. Or leave us a five-star review on iTunes, Google Podcasts, Facebook, or wherever it is that you listen to our show. Those actions help other people find our podcast. And in return, that helps us build an audience that can be supported by sponsorship so we can continue to provide you with our award-winning content every week. Thanks again for joining us. We'll see you on Breaking Banks next week.